Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, well, today, as you have probably guessed by now, is Palm Sunday. Uh, it's the first day of Holy Week, the final week of Lent. Uh, it is a day of celebration. It's a great warm-up for Easter Sunday. Uh, on this day, we wave palms and we shout Hosanna, which means save us. And one week from today, we will gather together and we will shout, He is risen. And in making the proclamation that He is risen, we are acknowledging that our plea of Palm Sunday has been answered. That in Jesus Christ has saved us by way of His death and His resurrection. And so this story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem that Megan did such a great job of reading the passage for us this morning, uh, this story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is a family-friendly, uh, rated G summer hit for all ages. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, who doesn't love Jesus riding side saddle on a little colt with people waving palm branches? I imagine that Ricky Bobby would probably love colt riding Jesus. This is so sweet. <laughs> But when you recognize what's going on in Jerusalem at this time and on this day, uh, you recognize that there is a lot more going on here than just a cute story of an important figure in history riding a donkey. Uh, I learned something today or this week, I learned something this week that I am excited to share with you. And it is, so today I want to talk to you about a tale of two parades. Because Jesus wasn't the only procession into Jerusalem on this day in A.D. 30. Uh, on the east side of the city, down from the Mount of Olives, was Jesus riding into the city on a colt, the story that Megan read for us. On the west side of the city, on the very same day, was Pontius Pilate riding into the city, mounted on a mighty horse, with soldiers all around him in full battle gear, carrying banners and chanting about the greatness of Rome. Author and historian Marcus Borg paints a picture in his book, The Last Week, which says this. He says, imagine the imperial procession's arrival in the city. It's a visual panoply of imperial power. Calvary of horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, and the sounds, the marching of the feet, the cracking of the leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, and the swirling of dust. With the eyes of the silent onlookers, some who are curious, some who are awed, others who are resentful. You see, what I want us to recognize on this Palm Sunday is that the, the recognition, what we have come to call the triumphal entry of Jesus on a cult is not the only parade in town. That there was on that very same day another procession, another parade. This march into Jerusalem is uh, given a visual depiction in the 2016 film, Ben-Hur, which I'm pretty sure that since I saw it a year ago, I'm, I think I've mentioned it in every sermon since then. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, you should. 
Uh, that's my last commercial for it until next week. Uh, but uh, here, here it is. Here's the march into Jerusalem from Pontius Pilate as uh, depicted in Ben-Hur. Jerusalem welcomes us. Tribune Masala's promised there'll be no trouble. I've spoken to prominent citizens. Your safety is their highest priority. Did you hear the army chanting as they marched into Jerusalem? Did you see the scale of the march? Here's what they're saying. Eterna vitrix, eterna vitrix, which means eternally victorious. You see the difference? Here's a massive army in full battle gear marching into Jerusalem with chants of eternally victorious. And then as they march through the streets of Jerusalem, what are they chanting? Do you hear it? Roma, Roma, Rome, O Rome, eternally victorious. This is the other parade marching into Jerusalem. And what you should know is that this is all normal fare for Rome. You see, these military marches were meant to be a display of power and of strength, and they were meant to send the very clear message, do not mess with Rome. (laughs) You see, power is seductive. And so these military marches were on one hand meant to say, don't mess with Rome. But because power is seductive, they were on the other hand meant to inspire flag-waving loyalty to the empire. And it was normal. It was normal. You might say, "Let's, let's get our history right. It's actually quite normal for Roman authorities to show up in the first week, on the first day of the week of Passover. Part of where we as, as Christians find our meaning of the final week and Jesus' death is that it's all happening during the, final, during the week of Passover. And so it was very common for Roman soldiers to appear in Jerusalem during the week of Passover, not because Rome had some sort of sentimentality for the religion of their Jewish subjects. Do you hear me? This is not Rome uh, being kind to the religion of the, of the people that they are oppressing, but rather they show up because they want to keep the peace. They want to be sure that they are preventing any trouble, that they are there to address any trouble should it arise. Passover is a celebration of when the Jewish folks were rescued from an oppressive empire. 
And so what better time for Jewish people to start an uprising to free themselves from the oppressive Roman Empire than Passover? And so as they start their religious uh, observation during the week of Passover, in marches Rome saying, don't mess with us. You get the picture of what's going on here? Yes, this is a rated G family-friendly summer hit. (laughs) But when you start looking behind the curtain, there's a lot more happening here. And the truth is is that many of the Jewish people wanted their king, their savior, to be a bigger, better version of Pontius Pilate. Uh, They wanted their king who would call to arms a bigger army, ride a bigger horse, establish an empire that would be more victorious than even Rome had been. This was the popular vision of the Messiah that was to come for the people of Israel. A savior who would wield the sword of empire but do it on their behalf. This was the popular vision, the popular hope. But then every now and then throughout the story of Israel, as you read the Old Testament, you get a different vision and and a different idea from the prophets. (laughs) Listen, we look now, we look back at the prophets and we say, oh, these people are brilliant. But their messages were never popular. Their calls to repentance Their alternative vision of what it meant to be a king in Israel was never very popular. And so here is what the prophet Zechariah envisioned for a different kind of king for the people of Israel. And he wrote a poem about it. It's in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. He says this. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. For see, your king comes to you. He is righteous and he is victorious. And all the people are like, yeah! Right? See, your king comes to you, but he is lowly and riding on a donkey. And the whole crowd went, right? Like letting the air out of a balloon. What? And then all of a sudden you get an idea that this is a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of vision of what power and authority means. And so he goes on, he is lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. I will take the war horses out of Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, in his rule, will extend from sea to sea and from the the river to the very ends of the earth. This is a different vision of what it means to be a king. And the prophet Zechariah has this God-inspired vision of the kind of king that would come and to, that would save Israel. He would ride on a donkey, not a horse. In other words, he would subvert and call into question the power persona of empire. Are you with me? Are you hearing me? That this, this imagery... For Zechariah, he says that the the king that is to come out of Israel is going to call into question the very power persona of empire. And thus, in this setting, in Jesus' setting, he is going to call into question the very power persona of Rome. But guess what? The power persona of Rome is the only thing the world had ever known up to this point. The power was military strength. And the prophet begins to offer an image that calls that whole system into question. 
And just in case you didn't catch the imagery, the prophet goes on to be more explicit about the description of this king. And he says things like, he will take away the chariots. He will take out the war horses of Jerusalem. To which people would say, what is Jerusalem without its war horses? (laughs) What is this thing without the presence of at least the symbol of power? And military might. He will break the battle bows. He will proclaim peace to all the nations. And then he goes on, and the the prophet Zechariah, he he should have thought about this before he preached it. (laughs) He should have been a little more discerning on his message, but here's what he says. And this king's kingdom will have no geographic boundaries, but his kingdom will be from sea to sea. Which is, which is a poetic way of saying there are no boundaries here. That this king's kingdom is without geographic boundary. Now I know that some of you are wondering about this, so let me take a little rabbit trail this way in case you're wondering why the pronouns switch from I to he. Did some of you notice that? The close readers did. <laughs> It's because of this. Look at, it, look at it again. He says that I will take away the battle bow and I will take away uh, the war horses. But then is the pronouns switch and then he will proclaim peace. And so the question is, well, why, why are the pronouns always switching from I to he? And it's because the prophet is speaking on behalf of God. And so when you read the prophets, it's actually quite common for the pronouns to switch back and forth between I, the prophet is speaking, to he, the one I'm speaking about. Because when the prophet is speaking on behalf of God, the I and the he are the same. And so it's, it's, it, he's describing the king, and he goes and says, I will do that. And he, Zechariah is under no impressions that he is going to single-handedly take out the war horses of Jerusalem and break the battle bows. But rather what he's saying is that this king is going to do it. The whole description belongs to the king. And what we need to recognize is that Zechariah's vision and poem is radical, it is subversive, and it essentially says that Israel's king is going to be a totally different kind of king, and yet still a king. Are you with me? And this is why the whole narrative of Passion Week is so profound is because all along Jesus is establishing his kingship, he's establishing his kingdom, all the while people are making fun of him because he's not really a king. (laughs) So they say or so they think. What king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and not a war horse? What Messiah would die? And so as he dies... They give him a crown, but a not, a, not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. They wrap him in a robe of purple as a way of mocking him. See, kings don't die at the hands of empire. They rule the empire. And so you're not really a king. Now we mock you with a robe. But all the while, the, the, the irony is thick with saying, not only is Jesus Christ the king of Israel, but he will become the king of the entire world. I mean, it is a beautiful, subversive story that's constantly surprising us and subverting what we expect. And so what Jesus does is he hearkens back to this vision of a king from the prophet Zechariah. And as he's coming down from the Mount of Olives with a, with a 
crowd following him from Galilee. The big majority of his ministry happened in Galilee. And so he's got this crowd of people following him as he goes to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And just as he's at the Mount of Olives, at the crest of the Mount of Olives, he goes and he says, wait a second, I need a colt. Because he has in mind Zechariah's vision of what kind of king will come. And so he offers instructions. They go and they give him a colt. And in fact, he rides into the city as a deliberate and intentional way of living into, fulfilling, and embodying Zechariah's vision of this kind of king. Are you seeing the differences? And so Jesus embodies the vision of a different kind of king and he enters the city with shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, perhaps, and we don't have any idea of how politically charged this statement is, but here it is, blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. We have completely lost how politically charged this this statement is. Blessed is the coming kingdom. No, there is no kingdom but Rome. Remember? Eterna vitrix. Roma a Roma. And here comes Jesus riding in on a colt with shouts of blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor, David. What I want you to see this morning is a tale of two parades. Because these two parades are making two very different proclamations. The parade from the West proclaims the power of empire. The parade from the East proclaims the kingdom of God. And these two parades are the perfect symbol of the central conflict of Holy Week that leads to Jesus' death. If you don't understand these two parades, you lose some context of why in the world Jesus had to die or why Jesus did die. Jesus died because he came proclaiming an alternative kingdom to the kingdom of Rome. And it upset the powers that be that were trying to protect the status quo so much that Jesus took on human sin and took on human violence upon himself and then ended it with forgiveness. Are you with me? See, sometimes we, we sort of like change the narrative a little bit. Uh, But the reality is is that this conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of empire is precisely what led to conflict in Holy Week. It's precisely what led to Jesus' death. A conflict that is surrounding questions of what true power, of what true authority, of what true kings actually look like. A conflict between the familiar expression of kingship and this new expression of kingship. Pilate's parade with soldiers armed with swords and shouting eternal victory for Rome represents the power, glory, and violence of empire that rules the world. Jesus' parade with followers armed with palm branches 
shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, represents an alternative vision to empire, the vision of the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom defined by love of neighbor and love of enemy, a kingdom defined by mercy and forgiveness, a kingdom defined by peace and ruled by the Prince of Peace. What I want to say to you today is this, that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is an intentional counter-procession to the procession happening at the other end of Jerusalem. There are two parades entering the city. The question for us, and the question for us every single Palm Sunday, is this. In which parade are you going to march? In which parade are you going to march? Because just as there were two parades marching into the city of Jerusalem, the reality is that there are two parades marching right into our lives and in our hearts. And we have to decide which one are we going to march in? On the one hand, you have, now before you decide, you should know that the choice maybe isn't so clear-cut as you might first think. On the one hand, you have the way the world has always run, the most powerful person or people rule and dominate until they are overthrown by someone who is more powerful than they. <laughs> and we know this way, we are familiar with this way, We've been living in this way since the playgrounds of grade school. <laughs> the reality is we are comfortable with this way. It is the way that says if you have something I want or need and I am more powerful than you, then I can simply take it. And if you don't like it, that's too bad because I can beat you up. <laughs> and whether that plays out on a national scale or a personal scale is of little consequence. That's the reality. Now, we've certainly come up with more sophisticated ways of talking about this way of life but it, to make it not sound so barbaric, but that is simply what it is. So you can militarize this vision, you can spiritualize it, you can mythologize it, but behind it all is the same ugly beast of power through coercion and so-called peace through the propagation of fear. Come on, somebody. Did you hear that? We can militarize it, we can spiritualize it, we can mythologize it, but behind it all is the same ugly beast of power through coercion and so-called peace through the propagation of fear. Now before you write this off, I'm making it sound quite awful, aren't I? Ugly beast and all this talk and some of you are starting to glare at me. That's when I know I'm getting in trouble. But before you're so quick to write this version of this parade, this version of the story and this parade off, there is actually a version of this that looks quite religious. There's a version of the Empire Parade that looks quite religious. You can shift the narrative a bit. And I want to be careful here, but I also want to speak the truth. You can shift the narrative a bit to make it sound better, to make it sound more religious. So instead of talking about racism or genocide, you can talk about God's will, manifest destiny, and being founded on virtuous principles. Instead of talking about blatant materialism, you can talk about God's blessing. 
Instead of talking about large-scale violence or systemic sin, you can shift the narrative to talk about personal responsibility and how you got here uh, only because you worked harder than everyone else. And, and you should know that inside the religious version of empire is actually the most, there is the most comfort, the most certainty, and the most confidence. But the question is, is it true? And is it the right parade? There is, of course, I thought it would get real quiet right around there. <laughs> uh, there is, of course, the other way, the alternative vision, the alternative uh, parade, the, the way of looking at things. This is a way of life that is unique and, 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 and new and often goes unnoticed. And, and on the surface, all this talk of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, on the surface, this way of life seems rather ignorant and uninformed, uninformed about the, quote, real world. In fact, on the surface, this, this message, this kingdom of love and grace and forgiveness and mercy that declares that these realities are the most powerful thing in the world, on the surface, it can look like a just love everybody party of the 1960s, complete with aviators, bell bottoms, big collars, and flower skirts. It can look like that. But make no mistake. This alternative vision of the kingdom of God is not that. This way of life calls us to forgive when we are wronged. To love those that we call enemies. To recognize the value of every life, every person, every group. And while on the surface it can seem like a rather sort of easy-peasy, fluffy way to go, it is, in fact, the most radical, difficult road to walk. In fact, Jesus called it the narrow way. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I had the privilege of teaching a Christian Theology 2 class to students who are in the process toward ordination. And I was talking about this God of love and how that God's love is revealed on the cross, that this isn't God angry at Jesus, but God's forgiving the world in Christ. And we were talking about all of these kinds of things and, and, and how we need to let go of our, our sort of violent, retributive views of who God is. And this one student in particular had such a hard time, and he said this. He said, love is such an easy way out. And I said, oh, brother... I didn't say like, oh, brother. I said, oh, brother. Love is not easy. Love is not easy. You see, what the, what the alternative kingdom calls us to is not an easy-peasy, just-love-everyone notion, but it, rather it is a call to subvert hatred, to subvert violence, to subvert oppression by offering alternative views to these ways of life and to live in this way, church. Will you listen? To live in this way authentically requires incredible risk, incredible courage, and requires personal cost. There is nothing easy about walking in the ways of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that are called toward us by way of the kingdom of God. There's nothing easy about that. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, verse 39, Jesus says, If someone strikes you on the right cheek, you need to turn to them the other cheek as well. 
And Jesus telling us to turn the other cheek is not a call to do nothing. You see, a lot of times we think that, that if we get trapped in this sort of like, oh, love is the easy route, Jesus just calls us to do nothing when we are wronged, then we have completely misunderstood the scriptures. Jesus' call to turn the other cheek in Matthew chapter 5 is not a call to do nothing. It is a call to subvert the violence. In this culture, to strike someone means that they are lesser than you. It is a physical demonstration and embodiment that I have more value, I am more important, I count more, you count less, you are diminutive, I am better. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And like, once you understand the culture of this, this is like half funny, half totally subversive. Turning the other cheek means they would have to slap you with their left hand. In this culture, that's the toilet paper hand. And they didn't have hygiene like we have hygiene, you know what I'm saying? And so it's this really subversive, like kind of funny way of being like, oh, okay. The other thing it does is, since you are unwilling to strike me with your toilet paper hand, then you must fight me as an equal. Now, is Jesus propagating get in a fight in the backyard or in the playground? No, what he's saying is when someone treats you lesser and does violence against you, you subvert the violence and make yourself an equal. Oh, man. Turns out Jesus is really smart. Love is not easy. Love is a call to subvert things in creative ways. Matthew chapter 5, verse 40, the very next verse, Jesus says that if someone takes your shirt, then give them your cloak as well. The cloak is the undergarment. Again, this is like half funny and sort of like, what do I do with that, right? So the cloak is the undergarment. So it's a wildly subversive power play of saying that if you are going to oppress me, then I will stand before you naked. Now, I know that all of you went to church or got up this morning, you're like, I can go to church without the preacher talking about being naked in front of everybody. I know I can do that, right? And then here, we're, we're just full of surprises, okay? But this is, what, this is what Jesus is doing. Someone takes your shirt, give them your cloak as well. Cloak is the undergarment. And guess what? In this culture, to, to, in, in most cultures, to stand naked before a stranger is shameful, not only to you, but here's the thing. It shames the other person as well. And so again, it subverts. It doesn't match with the same thing, but rather it subverts it. Jesus is actually quite brilliant. And then in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says that he comes not to bring a peace, but a sword. And we say, what changed? What happened to all this peaceful Jesus stuff? I like that guy better, right? If we're like Ricky Bobby and we just kind of pick what Jesus we like, I like the peaceful Jesus. I like the Palm Sunday Jesus. I like little baby Christmas Jesus, right? <laughs> like, but we can't do that. So what changed? When we get to Matthew chapter 10, I've come to bring peace. Uh, not peace, but a sword. What changed? And people like to abuse this scripture and use it to justify any degree of violence as God ordained. And to that I would say no. In this passage in Matthew, what Jesus is referring to is he's referencing back to again the prophets. Micah chapter 7. When in the, what Micah does is he says the sword will divide. So Jesus is saying, listen, the ways of the kingdom of Christ that I am promoting will be uncomfortable and you will have to choose. That's what Jesus is saying. 
You will have to choose in which parade do you want to march. So here's the thing. This has kind of been in your face a little bit, hasn't it? Um, I'm sorry about that. I don't mean to be in your face. But I do mean to present a gospel that is true to the scriptures and will call us to obedience and will challenge us. If the gospel never challenge us, it's probably not the gospel. <laughs> okay? So here's the thing. Peace is the promise of both parades. Why does Rome march with all their army gear into Jerusalem? Why? To keep the peace. And peace is also the promise of Jesus' parade. On one hand, peace comes through violence or the threat of violence and the propagation of fear. On the other one, the other one offers peace by way of forgiveness and grace and love. And while the promise is the same, the result is not. Because one leads to death, the other to life. Do you believe that? One way leads to death and the other to life. Let me say one more thing. These interesting teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, turn your cheek, give your cloak as well. What is implicit in those stories and in those teachings is this. That the person never left that there was still a relationship there. That there was still struggle and difficulty and risk. But I didn't just leave the room. You see, Jesus' call to love, even our enemies, is a call to radical relationship with people. And, and can I just say to you that I'm not that great at this. <laughs> that there's a lot of times where, where I just want to leave. I just want to leave the room. I want to go... Be an introvert, and there's you need to have space and personal boundaries, and go be an introvert, and all of that. But the thing is, is that, that when you turn the other cheek and you offer your cloak as well, you're still there, <laughs> you're still there in relationship, fighting and struggling and risking and going for it. And someone's someone has said, War is conflict. And this brilliant theologian and philosopher, Peter Rollins, I heard him say this week, War is not conflict. War is the result of people who don't know how to have conflict. War is the absence of relationship that all we know to do is violence against one another. Conflict is entering in and continuing to risk and staying in relationship. That's conflict. And so when... Rome, the only thing they know to do and the only way they know to bring about peace is war, then that ought to tell us something about the ways of empire. And it ought to bring us into some truth about the ways of the kingdom of Christ. I cannot overstate the importance of the question before us today. In which parade are you going to march? The promise is the same. The outcome is not. I encourage you, as the people of God, 
to choose the triumphal entry of Jesus and to join in the crowds who were waving their palms and shouting, Hosanna, save us, O God. Which is on one hand both, it is both at the very same time, it is, it is a shout of praise and a plea for help. And I don't think there's any better time than right now on this Palm Sunday, 2018, to shout to our God, Hosanna. We praise you, God, and we say, oh, God, do we need help. Would you help us? Can we be your people and walk in the ways of kingdom of God? But listen, it is a narrow way. It is not easy. It is not easy. But it is a way that brings life. Amen? Amen. And what I want to be is I want to be a person and I want to be a people that believe that and walk in it as best as we can. So let's do that. This holy week, as we celebrate Easter and the call, the answer to our plea is that Jesus Christ has died and is resurrected, that he is alive, that he is risen. Notice we say, this is, this is like dorky theological stuff at the end of a sermon, and I'm sorry, but we say, he is risen, not he was risen. He is risen puts it firmly in the present that Jesus Christ is alive today and working in us and among us by his spirit. Amen? Now he was risen, that something happened in the past, but he is risen. And because Easter lands on April 1st, next week we're going to say, he is risen, no joke. <laughs> right? Because you have to add that. Resurrection is not a joke, it's a real thing. That's what we're going to say next week, and I need you to help me, okay? All right, hey, let's pray, and I think we got some communion and a song and all of our normal stuff, so, but I'm, I'm pretty hyped up here, so let's go. Hey, and we have like five minutes, so I've preached shorter than, I, I've got like 10 more minutes to preach. Just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> Jay, don't encourage me. Let's pray, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the tale of two parades and for this counter-procession of the kingdom of God. God, we want to be people who walk and who march in this parade. And if we're honest, God, the choice is not on the surface so easy. Um, because we know that the way walking in the ways of the kingdom is risky. And it can be difficult, and it has a personal cost. But God, we confess by faith today that walking in the ways of the kingdom brings true, authentic life. And so God, help us. We, we don't make any pretense that we can do it on our own or that sort of like our own best ideas are the way to go, but, but God, we recognize today our utter need for you. And so we pray that in our lives, your Holy Spirit would just be freely at work, um, helping us to know and to understand and, and to move us and God, all of that can, can be odd and, and, and sometimes difficult to discern, but, but Lord, would you help us as we lean in together of what it means to follow you. God, we love you, and today we shout Hosanna. Would you save us? And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.